morning. Um, so our first reading is from Romans chapter 8, verse 14 to 17. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And the second reading today is from Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, to chapter 4, verse 7. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, John. This is, uh, by the way, not the first time I have to preach while wet, uh, accidentally. Uh, the previous time I lived near the church I was working at and thought I could make it without getting dumped on by the rain, but unfortunately arrived at church quite wet. And there was this dear, old, terrifying lady at church who had been there since 1852, I think, uh, and she said to me, John, there's one thing that I cannot abide, that is a wet clergyman. (laughs) Uh, She meant it with uh, love and sincerity, and so she lent me her umbrella to walk home with. Uh, What she had forgotten and what I realised soon afterwards was she was a retired GP and it was an advertising umbrella for Viagra. (laughs) And so I walked home as a clergyman. I wasn't wet, let's put it that way, on the way home. She was so mortified she called me up and said, John, I can't believe I've done this. Uh, I've bought you a new black umbrella. So there you go. Nothing to do with our sermon, but interesting anyway. (laughs) Well, welcome to St. Jude's. Uh, We are in a series looking at the big picture of is God is and we are. 
God is, we are. How do we relate to the God who is? And how does that affect who we are as human beings? And actually, the very question itself, who are you, is actually, I think, an increasingly complicated question. It seems a really simple question, but actually, no, I think it's getting harder and harder for people to even agree on the terms that you would use to describe yourself. Uh, Historically, and in many cultures still, the dominant way of who you are was based on things external to who you are, things that you had no control over. Uh, It could be your race or your gender or, or your parents or the class structure that you fitted within. And these things will tell you where you fitted into our structure in our society. This is who you are, this is where you fit, this is what you do. In other words, it was externally structured for you. You knew where you fitted in. Now, this view, by the way, is not without some serious problems. Sexism and racism are just some of the dangers that, that sit in this view. But what's happened, particularly in the West, in Australia, is we've now internalised our identity almost completely. It seems obvious. We decide who we are as people. And we are told um, uh, things like our race and age and gender, while important, um, don't actually determine ultimately who we are. It's who I feel I am is who I am. And this language has now moved to the, the whole idea of I choose to identify as. A common phrase. Our conversations previously may have begun I believe A, and here are my arguments for A. Argument one, argument two, argument three. And you might be familiar with, uh, maybe you grew up in that context, uh, but now it's completely different. The arguments now are, speaking as an X, I'm offended that you claim B. And it makes perfect sense, by the way, if you believe that we individually and internally determine who we are as people. That's the absolute logical and sensible conclusion. But there is a huge problem. We're actually not capable of constructing a robust sense of who we are just by ourselves. Unsurprisingly, once things turn internal, happiness and self-esteem become the big goals of who we are, It used to be important to have a stable job, a job that could pay and support your family. That was really important historically. Now it's important to have a fulfilling job, a job that gives you meaning. We now live in a world where people are told to trust themselves, to listen to themselves, to follow their hearts. You can all be astronauts, right? Just have to believe that you can be an astronaut. And our social media culture, by the way, is totally all over this thing where we construct perfect highlight reels of our lives. Only the good stuff and only the best of the best stuff. It's called image crafting. Uh, and my niece is brilliant. She taught me about this. She said, when she's on Insta, she, works, she takes about 25 or 30 photos. Uh, she then picks the best one, but she only posts it at a certain time of day when there are most Insta users to get the most likes because she was berating me for my 23 Instagram followers, which I thought was a lot, but apparently it's terrible. (laughs) What are you doing posting at that time of day, John? You're never going to get the image that you want online. No one posts their dirty laundry pile. Hashtag blessed, right? (laughs) 
Now, there are lots of problems with this, by the way. The first is our expectations now are universally so extremely high, no one can ever reach them. By the way, we can't all be astronauts. It's just not a reality. But we all feel like failures when we can't get there. I think the other challenge is it looks like everybody else is doing really well because we've crafted this perfect life online and then you look at your, your kind of real life and you think, oh my goodness, I cannot believe everybody else is living this beautiful and perfect life and mine is at best dull and repetitive, if not worse. And then, of course, thirdly, it's really hard to define common ground if it's all internally defined my internal versus your internal, there's so little common ground for us to have a, a helpful and positive and fruitful and caring conversation at times. And therefore, unsurprisingly, there's been actually a massive crisis of self, of who people are, particularly for those under 35. We live in the most safe society in history. The standards of living in Australia are through the roof. We have better paying jobs, amazing health care, but recent research shows highest levels of anxiety ever recorded. Forget war, forget other pandemics. Depression and anxiety are at epidemic levels because people are just wrestling with this idea of who I am. So this is a big issue, I think, talking about God is we are. It's an extremely relevant topic. And as we saw from, from last week, the Bible gives us some beautiful, I think very helpful ways of understanding truly who we are. And it's not determined by ourselves, as we saw last week. The fact that each and every human being is made in the image of God, the Bible says, means that each, and each individual person has intrinsic value and worth. We have a little sticker at home that says, you've never looked into the eyes of somebody who doesn't matter to God. Each and everybody, universally, age, race, cultural background, language, matters to God because they're made in God's image, which is extraordinary. But there's more. There's more. We're not just made in God's image. We are actually made to be profoundly connected to the one who's made us. And Christianity states that our connection with God is not transactional, kind of earning your way as kind of a, a professor at university and you're trying to get the way through. No, it's, it's actually a relational connection. And it's the most profound relational connection there is. Family. Family. Now, this is actually a very radical idea. If you've been a Christian for a while, you might have forgotten this. If you're not a Christian, you go, yeah, this is crazy, right? When you think about just how big, powerful God is, uh, this seems like the furthest point from reality. If God made the universe and all that's in it, he seems huge and unreachable. Let me give you a little, uh, kind of a, a pun for you to work out. You and I have one. The king seldom has one. That's Charles. God never has one. You and I have one, the king never or seldom has one, God never has one. I asked my kids when they were younger this pun, they said a bath. I said, that's not the answer, but I like it. I've already had mine, I've already had mine today, so that's not it either. The answer is a peer, an equal. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says God. 
See, God's not the one who's just made the world. He sustains it moment by moment, which is extraordinary. I've got a picture here of just a very, very small part of God's creation. This is a picture of uh, the famous Eagle Nebula. It's, it's amazingly beautiful, isn't it? Uh, by the way, from top to bottom, uh, 38 trillion kilometres high. If you were to travel at the speed of light, which uh, difficult, uh, four years at the speed of light to get between the top and the bottom. There are more nebula in our universe than there are people on Earth. This is what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40. He says, Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one of them by name. Because of his mighty power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And what this means, of course, is our concept of God will always be too small. Always be too small. Doesn't matter how smart you are, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, our puny little brains just can't comprehend the huge vastness of God in his mightiness. If there is a God who has truly made this, he must be bigger than this and more powerful than this. And the fancy word for this is God's transcendence, he's just unfathomable hugeness. Which means, of course, we can't manipulate God or, or control God or bargain with God. It's, we can't even do that with a hurricane or a cyclone. So if God is huge and powerful and mighty, how on earth can we approach this God? It'd be terrifying. Utterly terrifying. Yet, the Bible tells us that we can, beyond all common sense, actually come to God boldly. Boldly. Why can we approach the God who made this astonishing universe so boldly? And the answer is, while God is the most terrifying creator and sustainer of all things, the Almighty, we are also taught that God is Father. God is Father. Uh, and from the Bible, we, we understand that God is Father in two ways. God is Father in the, in the first and primary sense in that he's the first person of the Trinity. Trinity is God is three persons, but one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we say God is Father, it's a genuinely, genuinely relational term. That is, he is God, the Father of Jesus, who is God the Son. And throughout scriptures, Jesus constantly refers to God as his Father. So what we understand from this very simply is that the heart of God is not just extraordinary power, but also an eternal relationship. Power and love together. And so when we first speak of God as Father, this is the first thing we need to understand, that God is relational and Father. But God is also God the Father in another extremely powerful way. I want to show you another picture. Uh, I didn't take this picture, by the way. Uh, this is... Anyone know who this is? Anyone? Uh, old people? You know? <laughs> that's, that's, that, all the hands go down. I'm all, oh, yeah. so, over 30. So, so, young, younger. Anyone? I'm getting, JFK. I know because my initials are JKF, so we have, uh, hopefully it won't end the same way for me. Uh, 
Now, this is a picture, of course, JFK was uh, a president of the United States. Uh, there he is sitting in the Oval Office. And something bizarre has gone on. Kids, did you notice what's bizarre about this photo? Somebody has snuck in. Did you see who someone snuck in? Just towards the bottom, a small child has somehow got through the Secret Service. Uh, and uh, it's really hard to get into the, to the, the White House, and, unless there's a coup, of course, which seems to be more likely these days. Uh, but no one can walk in unless it's the Chief of Staff, someone who's got the authority and blessing of the President. So who is this little kid who's just able to, while the President works on saving the free world, come and sit at his feet and play? Now, we know the answer, right? This is his son, John Jr., sitting underneath the President's desk, oblivious to the huge things happening in the world. And this is the amazing truth. God is not just the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe. He is our Father. The God who flung stars uncountable into space created those astonishing nebula, is your father. And in fact, I would argue one of the primary ways we are to relate to God, to see God and understand who we are, is as God as father. Uh, J.I. Packer has written, he's a, a Christian author and theologian, wrote a great book called Knowing God, and this is what he said. He said, what is a Christian? Who are we? The richest answer I know that, is a, that a Christian is one who has God as Father. That's what you think the richest answer is. Not the only answer, but the richest answer. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much she or he makes out of the thought of being God's child and how much she or he makes out of having God as Father. The thought of having God as Father must control us as Christians it must control our worship and control our prayers and control our whole life and control all these things. Because if it doesn't control these things, you don't understand Christianity. You don't understand Christianity. Now, I want to note, by the way, that not everybody has a good father. And some people actually have terrible fathers. And so maybe, as you'd hear this, this can be confronting. But I want to say it is God here who defines what fatherhood is not our human experience. In the Old Testament, God is called the father of the Jewish people and God's people at least 14 times. In the New Testament, Jesus again and again says, this is how you are to relate to God. And Jesus here is bringing us into his relationship with the Father. As we are united with Christ, God the Son, we become, too, children of God. How does this happen? How, how does this astonishing truth happen? And the key word here is the word adoption. The word adoption. And we had adoption actually in both of our readings from Romans 8 and from Galatians 4. Romans 8, 14 and 15 says this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. God, Father, us as children. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you have received brought about by your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, we are adopted into God's family powerfully 
by the supernatural work of God through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And this is, this is teased out further in Galatians 4. 4.4. Uh, 4. But when the set time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Since you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. To see in both cases, it goes from slave to son. Now, if, by the way, it's important to understand, Paul is including women in sonship, and I'll explain why in a moment. It's quite a powerful image. It's not just for the blokes, it's for the women as well. Uh, in the culture of the day, uh, slaves obviously don't inherit anything. We can kind of relate to that. In Paul's day, the sons, particularly the firstborn son, as a firstborn, maybe we should bring this back, but you know, side issue. Uh, yeah, he here, that's right, he here, that's right. Uh, they stood to inherit from the father the business, the, the finances, everything that was, that was waiting. And what was very interesting in Roman culture was you would adopt your own children, your own son, as a way of signifying who you thought the heir was. And so what would happen is that a, a, a Roman patriarch would wait for a young man, perhaps a, a cousin or perhaps his brother's son or perhaps someone he's taken on board, and they would become, through this process of taking off a toga and putting on a new toga, going from being children who had the same rights as slaves to sons who would inherit everything. That's the culture of the day. And radically, women now get sonship, inheritance, heirs. It's a really powerful metaphor in the day. We kind of lose it a bit, but it's a radical idea of saying, guess what? You become an heir of the glory of God the Father, both women and men. And the baptism we had today of Penny is a sim an absolute beautiful symbolism of that. Penny becomes a child, a son, an heir to the glory of God becomes part of God's family. Therefore, we get to call God Abba, Father. Now, what's very interesting about that word Abba, it actually only occurs three times in the whole of the Bible. Uh, once in Mark 14, where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and in the two readings that we had today. Now, you, of course, know the name from somewhere else, right? Swedish, right? Rock group. 70s and 80s, I'm not, I'm not going to sing anything. Uh, they stole it from the Bible, by the way, just, just saying. Uh, and you, you kind of may have heard that the word Abba means daddy, a kind of a, a deeply kind of intimate childlike term that a little kid would say to their father. Uh, and that's, that's sort of accurate. It's, it's not quite daddy, daddy. It's, it's a slight, there is a slightly more formal understanding of the word. Um, it's a bit more respectful, but it's still a word that only children would say and adult children would say to their father. So it's still an intimate term, but it's not quite as um, dad. So I've heard people say, because we have Abba Father, pray to God, Daddy God. I don't think that's quite where we're headed. Um, but I'm not going to say don't do that, just saying probably not quite what's being said here. Um, but it doesn't actually make it less radical. See, when you start to comprehend that God... It, is genuinely your father, your spiritual father, 
it cannot help but revolutionize your life. That you are someone who is not just made in God's image, which is astonishing, but you're also part of God's family. God is your father. We are adopted as his children. In other words, uh, being a Christian is not just about you and God. It is about you and God, but it's also about you and God and his people. In other words, there's, there's a vertical aspect and a horizontal aspect to what it means to be a Christian. And by the way, if you look around, you see you're stuck with these people. They're family, right? Not just friends or people you hang out with at church. Family. Family. And I just want to draw out a couple of key implications of this amazing truth. The first one is how it, how it helps us understand radically our own identity. See, in a world that's struggling with identity, can you see how this gives so much hope? The fact that we understand who we are as made in God's image and a child of God is something that is unchanging and secure and has eternal significance. It's not your abilities or disabilities that define who you are or give you meaning. First and foremost, you're a child of God. It's not your age or your race or your gender what defines you first and foremost. It is that you are a child of God. It's not whether you're married or single that defines you first and foremost. It's that you are a child of God. It's not that you are struggling with being a parent or struggling to become a parent that defines you first and foremost. It's that you are a child of God. It's not struggling with work or trying, struggling to find work that first and foremost defines you. It's who you are as a child of God. We're getting the pattern, right? It's, that is who you are. Not just made by God in his image, but his child and deeply loved. Deeply loved. What an extraordinary thing to cling on to when trying to understand who you are. An identity that will withstand all pressures and all time. I think secondly, too, it profoundly affects how we understand what it means to be church, to be a, a, follower, a group of followers. Now, we live in the most technological uh, connected age in history. I worked out, I think I have 32 apps on my phone that enable me to connect with somebody else. And also, I can call somebody. 33, right? That's, that's the third one, which probably we use that one the least possibly. Uh, ironically, though, we're the most lonely. The most lonely. The rate of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. A recent study found that at least 40% of adults reported feeling lonely. And more recent research suggests the real number is even higher. Uh, Justin Rosenstein was uh, a Facebook engineer. He invented the like button, right? Actually, they're not on your resume. I meant the like button. Uh, he says that he's weaned himself of his own product, blaming the increase on, of loneliness on the rise of the so-called attention economy. So even he's given up Facebook, the guy who invented the like button, because he's lonely. And this whole idea of the attention economy is that Everyone and everything is demanding your attention and demanding it now. No one has time for depth and genuine and time-consuming relationships. 
Because relationships are not quick, they are inefficient. And if inefficiency is a very bad thing in our world. But guess what? It is deeply important for us to invest in, dare I say, inefficient relationships. Because being adopted by God as Father means you get a family whether you wanted one or not. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. And that makes God's family, his community, radically inclusive. It's, one of, it's almost, I think, I can't think of another community where it's not based on race or cultural heritage or age or ability or language. You can meet another Christian in an airport lounge who you don't even speak the same language and there's a brother or a sister. And it's a great equaliser because each and every person who joins the church, who becomes part of God's family, who's adopted, is not there because they bring anything impressive. It's only because they're adopted by the grace of God. It's a great equaliser. There is no longer Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's not saying that those things don't exist, but he's saying... When it comes to the beauty of God's kingdom and his family, they give you zero, zero privileges. In a world where being, particularly for a Jewish person, they would pray that they're, thank you that I am a Jew and not a Gentile, that I am male and not female, and that I am free and not slave. Things that you would, this is an entirely radical way of seeing inclusion. Everybody equal, all made in God's image, all adopted through Christ. And so it's important that you remember when you come to church, you are not coming as an audience or even just to be fed yourself. Yes, I'm really, we want people to be fed spiritually, but, but it's a family reunion, so to speak. The relationships of horizontal connection are crucial. It's a family gathering. And so the question I have here is, when people come to church, is there evidence of a community of an astounding love and inclusion or awkward individuality? That's the tension, right? Too often, rather than displaying the irresistible irresistible beauty of Christ, churches can make Jesus ugly to the world. We can fail to make people feel welcome. There can be gossip and clickiness, complaining and and bickering. Um, Forget about bearing one another's burdens. We don't even want to hear other people's burdens. I haven't got time for other people's burdens. Not efficient, is it? I've got time. I've got deadlines. Our vision here at St. Jude is to be a church for the whole person, for the whole community, for the whole city and the world. And a part of that vision to be a church for the whole community is that we want to give everybody a picture, an attractive and challenging glimpse of what it looks like to live as Christians. A real Christ-centred community in the midst of a world that is lonely. A community that says it's really obvious here that these people see God as their father and see each other as brothers and sisters. It is radically, 
radically different. I'll give you one brief example before we pray. One of the great joys in my job is visiting babies in hospital. If you're having a baby in hospital, give me a call. I'll be there. Um, and we were, I was visiting this little baby, and we are organising a meal roster, right? Pretty low bar in a church. Would you like some meals? Yeah. The, the midwife was there doing midwifey things uh, and stopped. And she said, did I hear you right? Are you organising meals for th- this couple and their new children? She said, yeah. That is amazing. I've never heard of a community that does that. We were shocked because we didn't think that was particularly ambitious, right? But that is how radical our Christian community should be. That it is attractive because it speaks of God's love to us. That we are bound together by Christ. God is our Father. We as his children. So let me pray that we would be a community where that is evident. That we ground our identity as people made in the image of God and redeemed by Christ as his children. And, and proclaim that great and good news to our world. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ we are adopted as your children. That we are not slaves, but heirs to all your glory and grace. Father, in a world that is increasingly lonely and disconnected, may this wonderful truth shine through us. May we ground ourselves firmly in who you are as our Father. May we love each other as you have loved us. And Father, we pray that we do all this for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.